0: This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome to another episode of Bradbury 100. It probably hasn't escaped your notice that this episode has appeared on the 31st of October. It's that most Bradbury esque of times, Halloween. So I thought I should have a guest who is best known for scaring the wits out of people. He's been called the King of Horror. It's the Emmy winning actor Bill Oberst, Jr. But Bill isn't actually here for the scares. He's here because he actually plays the part of Ray Bradbury on stage in a more or less one-man show. Well now, October is without doubt the one month most closely associated with Ray Bradbury. He has at least three books connected to it. The October Country, Something Wicked This Way Comes, and The Halloween Tree. His introductory passage to the October country best sums up his thoughts on the month. This is how it goes. The October country. That country where it is always turning late in the year. That country where the hills are fog and the rivers are mist. Where noons go quickly, dusks and twilights linger, and midnights stay. That country composed in the main of cellars, sub-cellars, coal bins, closets, attics, and pantries faced away from the sun. That country whose people are autumn people, thinking only autumn thoughts. Whose people passing at night on the empty walks sound like rain. I love the progression there, from the description of the nature of the country itself, hills and rivers and fog, blending with the atmosphere of the season, to the human geography of dark and shut-in places and then to the people themselves, the autumn people, thinking autumn thoughts. In the opening of Something Wicked This Way Comes, Bradbury takes a different approach, writing his introduction through the sensibility of a twelve-year-old mind, and almost like it was written by Mark Twain. This is how Something Wicked begins. First of all, it was October, a rare month for boys. Not that all months aren't rare, but there will be good and bad, as the pirates say. Take September, a bad month. School begins. Consider August, a good month. School hasn't begun yet. July, well, July's really fine. There's no chance in the world for school. June, no doubting it, June's best of all, for the school doors spring wide and September's a billion years away. But you take October now. School's been on a month, and you're riding easier in the rains, jogging along. you got time to think of the garbage you'll dump on old man Prickett's porch, or the hairy ape costume you'll wear to the YMCA the last night of the month. And if it's around October 20th, and everything smoky-smelling, and the sky orange and ash-gray at twilight, it seems Halloween will never come in a fall of broomsticks and a soft flap of bedsheets around corners. But one... Strange, wild, dark, long year. Halloween came early. And speaking of Halloween, in The Halloween Tree, Bradbury describes the onset of Halloween like this. And it was the afternoon of Halloween, and all the houses shut against a cool wind, and the town full of cold sunlight. But suddenly the day was gone. Night came out from under each tree and spread. Now, I just love that cold sunlight, sunlight which suddenly goes as darkness falls. And it's in the darkness and the shadows, of course, that we, well, Bradbury's protagonists, find horrors and fears to confront and overcome. Bradbury wrote other stories set in October and around Halloween, of course, and he wrote the occasional essay and reminiscence, including one called Tricks Treats Gangway, in which he recalls the Halloween of 1928, That's when he would have been about eight years old, and still living in Waukegan, Illinois. My favourite part of that article is at the end of a busy Halloween night when young Ray says, Darned! 365 darn days until Halloween again! What if I die, waiting? Why then, says his brother, you'll be Halloween. Dead people are Halloween. And so, on that grim note, I wish you the happiest of Halloweens. Now on to my guest. In 2012, the actor Bill Oberst Jr. was named King of Horror by the website Erebus Horror. This was in recognition of Bill's dozens of appearances in independent horror films. By this point, Bill had already achieved fame through winning an Emmy Award for playing the Facebook stalker in the interactive horror short Take This Lollipop. You may have seen him in Abraham Lincoln vs. Zombies. Not a great film, but Bill was great as Lincoln, and he's turned up in all sorts of TV shows, from A Thousand Ways to Die to Criminal Minds. So, you might think I've got him on to talk horror. But actually, I've just been cheating your expectations, because Bill is also known for being a very gentle soul indeed. Erebus Horror didn't just call him the King of Horror, they called him the Nice Guy of Horror. And it surely must be this side of his nature that he taps into when he plays Ray Bradbury on stage. Yes, there's a stage play which brings Ray Bradbury to life. It's called Ray Bradbury Live Forever, and it takes its title from Ray's well-known tale about Mr Electrico. It's also a play on words, Ray Bradbury Live Forever, because watching the show is like watching Ray Bradbury live. Now, sadly, I haven't yet been able to see the show for real, but a year or so ago, Bill very kindly let me see his script. He'd taken great care to get his portrayal of Ray and his stories correct, and I found it to be a really, really great script. Unfortunately, the pandemic has stopped Bill from touring the show as widely as he intended, but I have no doubt at all that he will one day get it back on the road and in theatres. I was really pleased to be able to speak to Bill for the first time, so let's meet him now. Joining me today on Bradbury 100 is Bill Oberst Jr. Bill is an Emmy-winning actor with a particular reputation for horror and the macabre. You may have seen him in any number of film roles and in TV shows such as Criminal Minds. And if you are very lucky, you may have seen him on stage playing the role of Ray Bradbury. Bill, welcome to Bradbury 100. Phil, thank you so much.
1: And may I say, as a Bradbury fan, that it's a real thrill to talk to you because your scholarship has been very important to me in discovering uh, aspects of Bradbury's work that I never would have without you. So thank you.
0: Wow, thank you very much. Bill, can you first of all tell us something about your stage show inspired by Ray Bradbury? I haven't seen it, but you did very kindly let me read the script at one point and I'm really anxious to see it, but tell us what people can expect.
1: Not only did you read the script, but you assured me that it was somewhat okay, Uh, (laughs) along with Jonathan Eller, who was my script advisor. Ray Bradbury Lived Forever is an attempt to honour Ray by presenting his words on stage, both his spoken words and some of his written works done in uh, some semblance of his character as if he were actually speaking to you. And it's authorized by the estate, licensed through Don Condon Associates. It's a labor of love, and it's the result of three and a half years of work and 19 drafts. I still don't know if it comes anywhere close to <laughs> capturing the the magic of Bradbury, but I guess if any fan did their tribute to Ray, it would be different. And uh, mine is poured through my own experience with Ray, which was he was a savior to me. He saved my life. Uh, Discovering Ray opened up a world of misfits. And I always felt like a monster and a misfit growing up. And I guess maybe all children do. But God, Ray certainly tapped into that because you knew instinctively, just reading his stories, you knew that he understood he understood what it's like to be a wandering alien and a misfit in this world. And he showed me that there were lots of misfits. He showed me that he himself was a misfit and what a person could do by embracing that instead of running from it. So all of that has wound up into the show. We start with a poem and we end with a poem. And I think that's fitting because as I've grown older, in my Ray fandom, I find that viewing life through a poetic lens is a through line through his work. You know, everything that he did, he's always looking for the metaphor and metaphors have become more important to me as I've grown older. So yeah, that's the stage show and it's taken a long time and, but I'm so, so glad that I did it and that we're trying to continue it. You know, I, I asked actors in L.A. who knew Ray and who really looked like Ray, a couple of them. I said, you know, you should play Ray. Somebody should do Ray on stage. And nobody ever did it. I just thought, you know, I'll try it. I'll try. I'm the least likely person in the world to play Ray Bradbury, but I'll give it a go. Uh, and I'm I'm glad that I did. I just try to surrender to his spirit and hope that something of his memory makes people view it kindly and makes them forgive my shortcomings and look toward him.
0: And you mentioned his poetry. And I think you said that the show ends with poetry. Yes. Which poem does it end with, if that's not a spoiler?
1: No, we begin with Remembrance and we end with If Only We Had Taller Been. Those are the two poems that make me cry (laughs) every time I do them. And oh, Phil, there is a, a composer in Florida, his name is Brian Lee, wonderful, very Disney inspired, and has had connections with Disney throughout his life. So he did the music for the show. There's this custom soundtrack, and his music for If Only We Had Taller Been, is so so beautiful, it just elevates and ends the show on this perfect note. Both Brian and I are a fan of the early Epcot Center of the early 80s in Walt Disney World for which Ray developed the Spaceship Earth attraction, the storyline there. So it it feels really, really good to have worked on the project with someone who loves Ray and loves what Ray loved. It makes it all of a piece. That poem, people stand and cheer and people afterwards come up and cry. And none of us that's the magic of Ray you listen to the words and they have a magical effect on you and you don't always understand people have come up afterwards and said I don't remember all of the words you said at the end but they made me cry (laughs) and I think well it's beautiful that's that's sort of the essence of magic you might not remember all the parts of the trick but you damn sure remember the effect of it
0: (laughs) perhaps the other thing to say about the stage show it's pretty much a one-man show would that be an accurate description
1: Yeah, it's a solo portrayal. Um, We do have the character of Ray's wife Maggie appearing briefly, but very importantly. And uh, they do a little romantic dance to beautiful Ohio. And that leads us into the core of the show and the heart of the show, which is a, a long selection from Something Wicked.
0: You mentioned beautiful Ohio is part of the show. I imagine that's out of copyright now, is it? Yes, well, we used a Glenn Miller version of Beautiful Ohio for them to dance to because that would
1: have been, during Ray and Maggie's courtship and early marriage, that would have been a version that they would have known. Right. I quite like the way that he used Beautiful Ohio as a metaphor, you know, because it's such a... Oh, it's such... It's so out of time, you know? In Mars is Heaven, when the, the uh, astronauts here, beautiful Ohio coming from on Mars and the, Ray had the way that he blended this old quaint dusty Midwestern sentimentality with this harsh futurism that's oh it's just so it's so beautiful so that moment with Maggie where they dance on stage at beautiful Ohio is followed immediately by the harshness of another piece you know it, it comes right out of it that's do you think that's part of ray's magic is that that marriage of something very quaint
0: with something very strange oh definitely yeah there's a contrast there isn't there and, and sometimes a jarring effect of those two things yeah I, absolutely it is it's jarring um mars is heaven is when i remember
1: as a child as a young boy, reading when the Martian, when the when the brother changes into the Martians, it was horrifying because it makes you think, oh, my grandmother, the people that I love, the things I trust the most, could they change into something horrifying? And then at the end, you know, there's the mayor and all of the Martians are having a parade with the coffins, and he says they shimmered as all things shimmer in the light. <laughs> oh my. God, it was horrifying. But this is, you know, you you talk about Bradbury adaptations. If you adapted that moment exactly and literally and showed the mayor shimmering on screen, people would not feel it in the way that you feel it when you read the sentence, they shimmered as all things shimmer in the light. There's just something about his word choices and his, completely self-educated choice of words there's an alchemy there that's just so hard to capture in any other form
0: absolutely an interesting thing i discovered when i was looking through bradbury's papers relating to the ray bradbury theater tv series is that Mm. when he did his adaptation of mars is heaven he asked the producers if they could get beautiful ohio for the soundtrack And at first the producers said, "Uh, well, no, it would be too expensive. We don't have any money left in the budget for doing that. But we can probably get a composer to write something in a similar style. So Ray Mm -hmm. said, "Okay, let's go for that then. And then a couple of days Mm -hmm. later, he wrote to them again. All of his communication in those days was via fax machine. He wrote them a fax saying, look, I've been thinking about it and it's got to be Beautiful Ohio and I'll even pay for it myself. And eventually, hmm. that's what they did. They they did use the song that it had to be, and he paid for it, which to me shows there's there's something about that song. It's not just a random choice of old music that he's chosen. It it is no specific he th- no.
1: There doesn't seem to be anything random um, in his works, and you know, in um, Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction, that great resource for listing all of Ray's works and how they came to be, and I remember reading about uh, how Dandelion Wine was put together in the many, many versions of that book that and the bridging material that Ray created, and at the end, he didn't want to let it go. He just kept rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it. He was such a perfectionist with his word choices, and when I speak to school groups about Ray, and of course, they have no idea who Ray Bradbury was. read them some of these magical passages then talk about ray's work ethic doing is being to have done's not enough to stuff yourself with doing that's the game that that's how ray did it he did it by doing by doing things things get done he wrote these sentences by first as he said purging himself and just getting it out on paper first thing in the morning and then going back and refining it and saying this works this works this works all the work all the work and again that's very midwestern isn't it that work ethic well you know this is the thing phil with ray i mean which you know better than anybody else but his works his world his life were all of a piece it wasn't as if he was a writer who said i'm now leaving my private life and i'm going to write things that you know are in another world. It was all of a piece, all of a piece. He must have been horribly difficult to live with. (laughs) You know, (laughs) he must have been wonderfully rewarding at times, but at times just so (laughs) extremely difficult because he was so purely himself. And when I researched the show, you know, I hear Ray had stock anecdotes that he would tell over time. And I went back to the earliest versions that I could find of these uh, uh, origin stories of Mr. Electrico and uh, all of the stories that he would tell and the stories about working on Moby Dick. Uh, (laughs) And you would think that, well, you know, he, he changed and exaggerated over time as it went. But Ray was always Ray, whether he's, you know, on The Tonight Show way back in 1957 or shortly before he died. It's the same man, the same personality. He was pretty uncompromising, wasn't he?
0: Yeah, yeah. Did you really get to see a recording of The Tonight Show in 1957?
1: Oh, yeah. The Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies at Indiana Purdue University was really kind, and they sent me loads of archival sound, video and photos and just everything, I went there twice and uh, everything I asked for, they were kind enough to provide and let me have access to and uh, yeah, I, I wanted to study Ray's public persona because that was as much a part of his ri- his work as his writing and I wanted to know how he had chosen to present himself from the very beginning of his public life up until the end. So. Uh, I tried to look and listen to all of it, and many of those snippets from speeches and interviews are in the show woven into his own writing. And the cool thing is they fit. It's not as if you have to take something from a speech and figure out, well, how am I going to bridge this into a selection from something wicked? It's all of a piece. That's To me, that's the beautiful thing about him.
0: Yeah, yeah. I gather that Ray isn't the first historical figure you've portrayed. I've read that you've been JFK, Mark Twain, Abraham Lincoln, Jesus of Nazareth. Is there any particular challenge in playing famous people as opposed to just fictional characters?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, You're not them. and You don't garner the respect that they do. When Ray Bradbury walked into a stage, there was an electricity and excitement and uh, most of all a love. I don't have any of that. I have people who are vaguely curious if they're just somewhat aware of Bradbury and then I have people who are highly skeptical if they are Bradbury devotees as as I am and you are. So you have a lot of proving to do the same is true certainly for Kennedy and even for Mark Twain. You know, you have people who have their mental images of these people. So it's difficult but What I love to do, speaking of boiling down to the essence, you know, my mental image is taking a bone and boiling it, boiling it, boiling it until you've made a good stock. That's my job as a redactor. All of these portrayals are done in people's own words. And my job as a redactor is to take all of their words, boil them, boil them, boil them. For the Bradbury show, we had 19 versions of the script before we got an approved version. And keep boiling until all of the... Steam has burned off and all the fat is gone and you're left with the good heavy stock. I wonder sometimes if we even know in our own lives, when you're gone and when I'm gone, what mattered about us, Phil? You know, I wonder if we can tell or if it will be left for someone in the future who loved us and who cares enough about us to look at all the things that we said and left behind and they can figure out what we meant. I don't know if we can.
0: When you're portraying Ray or or any character, is there a... That's a nice tune.
1: No, you hear my uh, lovely
0: old-fashioned clock chiming in the background. I'm sorry. It's quarter past the hour. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. brilliant. Um, When you're portraying a character or when you're beginning to portray a character, you don't necessarily have that essence what do you grab hold of first in the character is it the words is it the the physicality always the
1: words always the words i i am a words person i uh, encountered ray solely through words i never saw him and it was many years after i began reading him uh, because i grew up in the age before instant access to things and it was many years before i even saw a tape of him speaking or heard his voice So, so Always the words. This is certainly true for Jesus of Nazareth. Any uh, indication of what he looked like or sounded like is purely hypothetical. Somewhat true for Twain. Uh, True even for a figure like Kennedy, uh, who I experienced mostly through the words. So yes, the words, but, but then you have this volume of words, this voluminous material, and it always seems incredibly daunting as if I can't do this. This is not possible. And I'm just grasping and grasping and grasping. And especially in the case of Ray, I remember talking to John Eller initially and said, John, I love so many pieces, but I can really only have three major stories here because my uh, negotiations with the estate limited me in the word count that I can use. And so I need to pick three stories. Uh, John said, what do you love? And I said, I love all of them. And he said, what do you love the most? What are your favorite children? And that's how we started the process and John had his favorite children and I had mine and we met on two of them. But both of us had to discard one of our favorite children (laughs) to, uh, you know, to come to an agreement about what was going to be in the show. So that's a long way. Gosh, all my answers are long, but that's my long answer to your question. (laughs) Always the words. The physicality is just, that's, that's just green. You, 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 you know, you try to get somewhat close, but you're, you're, you're weaving a spell as a magician and your tricks are the words. I think Ray said once that, uh, I have a tape of him speaking to Don Condon. It was for a biography that never came about. And Condon says, you know, people speak of you as a legend and the greatest living scientist." and Ray just cuts him off. But he's no, no, he's out. I would like people to think of me as their favorite magician, a hmm? magician with words, and that that's the way I think of him.
0: Oh, that's great. That's great. Some years ago I heard an interview with Ray where he was talking about theater and radio, and he said mm. that theater is a form of radio drama. Because when mm-hmm. you're sitting in the audience, you're so far from the stage, you can't really see the faces. Now, this is coming from a man who was very short-sighted, uh, as I am. So I, I sort of share that uh, that idea. But do, do you have...
1: I've, I must say I find that to be true also. We started this show with a version of Grey Bread Brave, Live Forever. I debuted it in Los Angeles for Ray's Friends. And I toured it for a while. And it, just, it was acceptable, but it just wasn't right. It just wasn't... There was something missing. And then I got into Rose poetry in a way that I've never gotten into his poetry before. I got a copy of When Elephants in the Tour Last Bloomed uh, from Amazon. And I started getting into his poetry. And now the, the latest version of the show, which I'm really comfortable with, and I performed a couple of times before COVID hit, it opens with Ray simply walking out on stage and there's a bicycle behind him and he does a poem to the audience and there's nothing going on visually the lights are very low so really there's nothing but ray his voice the words and your ears and the, the poem is remembrance and it it weaves the proper
0: spell to begin and this is the um, this is the poem where he goes back to Waukegan and climbs a tree that he climbed as a child. Is that is that the one?
1: It is the one, and I can hardly think of it without crying. I certainly can't deliver it without crying. Um, it's deeply emotional to me, as I know it was to Ray. And I can tell you that speaking it to a group of people, it's so universal, Phil, because everybody has that those childhood regrets and longings and yearnings and the wonder of, uh, what if I could talk to myself? And when I do that poem on stage as Ray in the low light before the show begins, there's this little sound that audiences make when they're very emotionally connected. And to me from the stage, it sounds like a, Mm. it's just a little, Mm. it's very subtle, but you hear it, little sighs from all over the audience. And then I know that we're ready to begin When Ray says, what was it I wrote that made me weep? I remember you. I remember you. Then the lights go down and the music comes up and the stage behind me lights up and the show's off and running in in proper fashion.
0: Wow, excellent. (laughs) Now, As I say, obviously, I haven't seen the show yet, but I've read and I've seen some photos that indicate you use some kind of prosthetic to transform your face. Was that important for the performance as you developed it?
1: I thought that it would be, Phil, and I went to great expense and trouble to create such a prosthetic and did indeed use it for the first couple of performances. But I originally envisioned this show as I'm going to recreate Ray Bradbury in the sense that uh, Hal Holbrook recreated Mark Twain. And then I realized that such a thing was A, not possible, and B, not really respectful to Ray, because Ray was so large a personality, a public figure, and so large a soul that I don't really want to intrude on him if this makes any sense at all and I'm thinking it out as I'm saying it because I constantly think why don't I really want to use the prosthetic anymore it's because I want to be seen as paying tribute to Ray and so the performances that I've done without the prosthetic I quite like more but I feel much freer because I don't feel the responsibility of trying to recreate Ray Bradbury it's as if I'm saying to the audience let's together celebrate this man's ideas. And then I feel that there's more room for Ray's spirit to inhabit the words in the show without my trying to take up all the space myself. So it's become more of a fanboy show. Certainly I try to approximate Ray's voice and capture his motions and give a hint of his look. That the audience is in on the joke in a way that they weren't in on the joke with Hal Holbrook as Mark Twain, which was billed as an amazing recreation. Yeah, the show that I'm doing is a celebration of Ray through his ideas.
0: And of course, you wrote the show as well as performing in it. Did you use any particular factual books or biographies in constructing Ray?
1: I redacted it. And I make the distinction because it's all Ray's words. I have chopped them up into little pieces much in the same way that the beatles producer george martin did when they produced sergeant pepper he chopped up little pieces of tape and just threw them on the desk and then stitched them together in different forms and so i've redacted ray but i list ray as the writer of the show because all the words are his i've just bridged and moved around uh, besides his actual words I read biographies and found John Eller's biographies and uh, Sam Weller's biographies to be very helpful, but mostly it was Ray's own words. And in particular, uh, Ray's speeches from the 1970s when he was sort of at the height of his power, you know, and he would give speeches to libraries and to scientific symposiums. Those were very, very instructive to me because the same themes kept coming up over and over and over again they were very helpful. I, I remember hearing Garrison Keeler say about Mark Twain. Keeler said he lived a fascinating life full of wild adventures, but in the end, his own writing is more interesting than his biography. And I find that to be true about Ray. It's, he is more interesting than anything anybody could write about him.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and you mentioned earlier. I think uh, you said three stories made the the main narrative parts of the play. Which stories did you use?
1: A sound of thunder represents the short stories. Something wicked is the centerpiece of the show, and then we finish up uh, with Million Year Picnic from Martian Chronicles. Uh, and I, I I may yet change out a sound of thunder and instead put in the velt because it so relates to technology but that's the current lineup
0: yeah yeah and and how do you represent sound of thunder on stage is it just words or is there sort of lighting effects or projection or anything like that
1: for the whole piece we have a, a large screen behind me with rear screen projections running the entire time so essentially i'm performing to a 90 minute movie which keeps me on Pat I can't linger (laughs) I have to keep moving and uh, but so yeah we have some uh, graphics and uh, you know but we never show sort of the dinosaur or anything like that because it's all words a lot of it is Ray jumping around the stage using a chair to represent the dinosaur and looking up as if he sees the dinosaur and all that sort of thing but then again I heard these Don Condon interviews with Ray which were amazing because they're done in his home and Ray's very relaxed but Ray's talking about a theater company that was doing um, the Irish piece in which the driver gives up alcohol and he becomes a, a very frightening driver. Ray talked about a theater company that was doing a production of that, and he was watching them. And they said, well, we'll have an actual car on stage. And then that became too cost prohibitive. And they thought, well, we'll just have the front of the car. Or, you know, we'll have a projection of the car. In the and, and so Ray... <laughs> Ray Ray he said <laughs> he said I walked up on stage and I took two chairs and I put them down and I said there there's your damn car sit in the car put out your hands like this there's a the steering wheel and now there you are now do the story and and that was it and that's the way they presented it two guys sitting in chairs so my show is similarly minimalist including uh, a sound of thunder <laughs>
0: Tell me something about your own background in Bradbury. Can you remember the first Bradbury that you ever read?
1: I'll never forget it. I was a very lonely, misfit child. I grew up in a rural area, South Carolina in the USA. I used to go on long walks in the woods. Uh, I was always a reader, but I'd never heard of Bradbury because, you know, all we had back then, we had Famous Monsters magazine. We had uh, paperback racks at the bookstore you know, my world was pretty small, and and I was walking through the woods one day, and this thing glittered in the sun. It caught the sun, and I looked down, and it was the golden cover of S's for Space. Somebody had dropped this dog-eared copy of a paperback out there in the woods, and there was this man in glasses looking up incredibly, hopefully, and looking up past me up to the sky and it made my eyes go up and said, what is, who is this guy? What is he looking at? What is a Ray Bradbury? And uh, you know, it said something like tales of imagination from the master of imagination. uh, The world's greatest living science fiction writer. And I took it home. I probably read it before I even got home. Knowing me, I would have sat in the woods and read it. But I remember the first piece that I read was pillar of fire and it arrested me the angst of this character fit my young angst so well. And when I got to the last part where William Lantry is saying, you know, I am Edgar Allan Poe, I am all that is left, you know, that I call it the hymn to Halloween, I cried. I was like 13 or 14. But I'm reading these words and I'm crying. I didn't even know why I was crying. Now I do. But it wormed its way into my heart. I devoured the rest of the book, and I made my mother take me to the drugstore. And they didn't have any other Bradbury, but I asked the woman, can you get some more of these books? And she did. And uh, I read everything that I could from Ray after that. But that was my first exposure to him, and that's why I did Pillar of Fire as the first Bradbury piece I did. And even now when I do Ray Bradbury Live Forever on stage, I have that book in my hand as the representative book which Ray reads from because that's my boyhood Bradbury and it's very dear to me.
0: It's interesting that that book was um, originally conceived along with R is for Rocket as being primarily for younger readers not little children but you know sort of what today we would call young adult fiction.
1: And and it worked the cover design the and I've never been able to find out the name of that artist but it's a beautiful design and it perfectly appealed to um, 13 14 year old boys and girls of my Age group. And I, you know, Phil, it wasn't until years later, after I'd read all of that series of paperbacks, when I looked in the front and saw when the stories were actually published, I was amazed. I thought, oh my goodness, you know, it's 1974 and this story was published in 1948. I had no idea that they were collections of older stories because Ray seems so contemporary.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Clearly, Pillar of Fire still means a lot to you today. But if you could only have one Bradbury item in your life, if you were only allowed to have one, what what would you choose now?
1: I think of the stories of Ray Bradbury, the book with the red cover. But I think I have to go with something wicked because it speaks so to my soul. It deals with death, which is my favourite part of Ray. I love the way he faced head-on the fact that we're not going to be here forever. I love that Mr. Dark offers us what we most secretly want. And if he catches us at the right time, we just might take it. I love everything about something wicked. And I think I would have to have it because it's sort of a parable. And if I were marooned on the island the rest of my life, I could slowly read that book over and over again and find something new at it each time.
0: Yeah, yeah. What what do you think of the film? Have you you ever seen the film?
1: I have, and it's fine, but it's something completely different. Mm. It's um, I, I I haven't ever seen any Bradbury adaptation because I'm a words man, and I encountered right through words. I've never seen or heard a uh, spoken word or dramatized or stage production that I thought captured what he was and who he was. I think he is notoriously hard to adapt because he's weaving a magic spell and it's his spell. It's not yours. I'm speaking as if, you know, you were a film producer or, an, or a writer or a screenplayer, I'm going to adapt a Ray Bradbury story. I know from doing the show that it's hellishly hard to, to adapt his works to any other medium. So I, I know he did his own plays, you know, and i I compare the stage version of pillar of fire to the book. The novella, and it's the novella is far superior in my mind because it's the purest exploration of the form. I guess what I'm trying to say is, yes, I've seen all the films and the adaptations of Ray's work, but I don't think that any of them are as beautiful and as powerful as the works themselves. What do you think? I mean, because this has been your area of study. What's your opinion?
0: Well, I've seen enough good moments to believe that it is possible to adapt Bradbury, but I see very few complete works that seem to work in adaptation. So Something Wicked is a really good example. There are fantastic scenes in that film that really capture what's in the story, but they're followed by scenes that don't work or that are are sort of offered a tangent to the story. So he's he's very difficult to to do.
1: I, I think of The Dust Witch sequence which in the book is one of the most powerful because it's so silent yes you know this balloon is silently these fingers reaching down it's horrifying and I don't find the spiders in the film nearly as horrifying <laughs> but then again it's a, vi- it's a visual medium
0: Yes, but there's, there's the sequence in the library where Mr Dark tears the pages out of the book and yes. um, sort of steals the ears of uh, Mr Holloway's life away from him yes that that's a very powerful scene
1: i agree and when i do i, I do think of that scene when i do that scene on stage that's the image of my mind is from the film you're right that was a full capture of what bradbury was intending mm. and oh it's so hard you know on stage at the end of that piece i i have bradbury as yes, jason robarts did sink to his knees as Halloway you know I'm playing everybody I'm playing Mr. Dark and then it switches back to Holloway. and when he when he sinks to his knees at the end when Mr. Dark says lost forever and, and Halloway goes down to his knees when I do that on stage I can hear the audience go and it, it's the gasp of realizing their own mortality and uh, their own fragility and the the tenuous nature of life that's a beautiful scene isn't it I, I I have a tape of Ray speaking in a library in the 70s in which he said, this is my favourite book. This is the book I would like mention on my tombstone. And he says, I think this is the best scene I ever wrote. Now, that was like in 74 or something. So I don't know if his opinion changed over time, but I know he
0: was proud of it. That's interesting that, that he said that. I didn't know he'd said that about his gravestone because on his actual gravestone, it says author of Fahrenheit 451.
1: That's right. And as you know, earlier in his career, earlier in the 60s, the sort of early space age version of Ray, he used to say that what he wanted was, here lies a teller of tales. He said that many speeches, he used the metaphor of the street of the teller of tales, where you go down the street and people tell you different stories. And he said, all I want on my tombstone is here lies a teller of tales. But then does it, does you know, I guess what's on our tombstones is for the others and not for us, right?
0: (laughs) i suppose so i i always thought that in having fahrenheit on his tombstone he was simply recognizing that it's the most widely known of his works it's i, I don't know if it's the best selling but it, it's taught in schools you know so it's it's very widely known
1: i agree and and i i dislike that people only know fahrenheit i dislike that uh, as i've begun to try to get this little labor of love show out there that i find many many people if they know ray at all And I'm shocked by the number of people who don't know who he was. But those who do, who are younger than me, generally will say, oh, yes, he wrote Fahrenheit. And that's all they know. And I don't like that because it's a beautiful book, but it pigeonholes him as a certain particular type of writer. And he was so much more.
0: I agree with that completely. Yeah. Now, as well as your stage work, your film work, TV work, you do voice acting. You're on... The, the wonderful Gothic Good Night podcast, which is a fantastic lesson oh. in the power of voice. Is voice acting something that you particularly enjoy doing?
1: Yes, always, because when I was a boy, I just wanted people to not know that I existed. Um, I wanted more than anything else to just hide, and so people wouldn't see me. And so the very first job that I had was a radio station, and I did radio all through college and um, was able to be secure (laughs) with only having my voice heard without being seen yeah and i quite love that i remember being a boy and listening to am radio um, which is very big when i was a kid and there's a phenomenon called skip with the am radio signal uh, where it bounces and it skips Uh, fm goes in a straight line and if it hits an obstacle the signal you know it degenerates but so every night tuning into my AM radio, I would find different broadcasts. And back then, a lot of stations late at night would run the old radio shows. And so I would hear these broadcasts of lights out or suspense or, you know, some of the things that Ray grew up with too. And I I heard a lot of spoken word dramatizations uh, on the radio as a boy in the dark. under the covers and that really stuck with me the power of the voice coming through and so when I developed my own little podcast I wanted it to be a nighttime podcast and I'm quite irritated when people say oh I was doing the laundry and I listened to your episode I don't want them to do it while they do the laundry fill you know I want them to turn out the lights and listen in the dark the the human voice in the dark is very very powerful to me and it in the, in the Bradbury stage show, there are moments where the lights are so dim that you can barely make out what's on stage. And that's, to me, those are the most powerful moments.
0: One of the things I like about Gothic Goodnight is it's incredibly intimate because it's mm. just you and and the listener, and, and it feels very close mic'd the way you perform it. I don't know whether you are physically close to the mic, but it really feels intimate in that way and yet the stories of course quite often are are horror stories so there's a strange blend there of of the intimate and the distancing effect of of horror stories but it's very powerful. I
1: I thank you for that and that's sort of my homage to um, what Vincent Price and Karloff and those guys used to do on the radio and I've heard Ray do this too in speeches. You know, he would have moments in all of his um, great public addresses where he's way off the mic, you know, and he's saying, it's your job to say to the world, this is how I see you. This is how I dance you. This is how I write you. And then the world looks at what you've done and says, "By God, that's who we are. That's who we are. But then there are also times when he's very, very close to the mic and he's telling people there's... In fact, I I opened the show right after that poem with words from one of these very intimate moments. He's speaking to a group of scientists at a symposium and he's introduced and the applause dies down and it's very quiet. And Ray (laughs) leans in and says, I think you need me. Yes, I'm sure you need me. I think you've forgotten. And then he starts in talking, but it's very arresting. Because he doesn't just, boom, go off. So I, I, I love those sort of voice levels. I love the human voice. If I were blind, I could be okay. So long as I could hear people's voices, the world would still be very broad.
0: And of course, we, we've been suffering through the pandemic in recent mm. months. And, and I know that's prevented a lot of actors from working. Film production shut down, TV production shut down, theatres are closed. Are things beginning to look up um, for you now as an actor?
1: They are. Uh, there's productions that are beginning again, a uh, stage production, in my estimation, won't be back until we have a vaccine. The uh, Bradbury shows that I had for the tour for the remainder of 2020, all canceled and rightly so. Um, so I'm thinking sometime in 2021. But I have, as is my Germanic want, I have used this time to uh, do things that I have wanted to do for a long time to create the podcast to write an an accompanying book which i'm working on now and to do revisions to the bradbury show which i had been wanting to do for a while so it it's actually been okay it's been a breather um i mean i know it's been a horrifying event for the world and it's been jarring but it's been it's been a refreshing breather in an odd way how about for
0: you yeah i agree with that last Sentiment. It, there's there is something refreshing about putting everyday life on hold and uh, having a bit of time to think about things. But it, it's if it goes on forever, it it becomes a bit irritating. Agreed. Finally, Bill, if listeners would like to find out more about your work, where would be a good place for them to look?
1: Well. If anyone is interested in communicating with me online, um, if you just Google my name, Bill Obers, Jr., you get a website and Twitter and Facebook and all of those things. The Bradbury Show itself is at Ray Bradbury, LiveForever, dot com, and uh, we're on hiatus now, but we're actively booking shows for next year. I like to hear from people, and um, yeah, if people have any thoughts on, uh, uh, particularly on Ray favourite works of his. or um, I like to talk ideas, particularly the ideas of Bradbury. I answer all my mail, and uh, I, I enjoy hearing
0: from people. That's great. Thank you, Bill, for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Phil. My thanks once again to Bill Oberst Jr. for joining me today. In the show notes on bradburymedia.co.uk, I'll post links to Bill's many activities, including his own podcast, Gothic Goodnight, which, by the way, is just made for Halloween listening. And please join me next time for another Bradbury 100. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols, in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk.